Well, with a couple of weeks break, let's take a quick review of where we've been. We've been in the last three lessons or so. We've been in chapter six, which is the third warning in the letter of Hebrews. We can summarize the writer's warning in that chapter simply as setting your goal on spiritual maturity. That was principally his concern. And to do so through the study, through the application of the word of God, the writer said on several occasions, things like don't fall away to the life that you knew before you came to faith. Because he says, if you do so, you put at risk the possibility that you may never return to the straight and narrow. You may fall away such that you never come back, not in terms of your salvation, we understood, but in terms of your witness, in terms of your life of pleasing the Lord. Instead, the writer encouraged all believers to take hold of the hope of resurrection and the hope of eternal reward. Keep those things in the foreground of your mind, always remembering God is faithful to keep his promises to you and to me regarding these things. So, as I like to say, live with eyes for eternity rather than your eyes fixed on the world. And we remember why the writer launched into this warning, don't we? Why did we ever get into chapter six? Why did the subject of these things come to mind for the writer? It was because he had wanted to explain the mystery of a person called Melchizedek and to explain how Jesus in his priesthood is related to the priesthood of this man Melchizedek. Now, he was getting to that at the end of chapter five, but he said this was a complex teaching, one that's built upon other truths of Scripture. And unless you possess some degree of spiritual maturity in study of the word, the writer questioned whether his audience was going to be able to understand what he needed to explain. Because without the maturity, they were going to be lost. He said to them that they had failed to pursue maturity. And that's why he then felt the need to issue this warning to them, this warning of what happens if you don't make spiritual maturity a priority. So now it's time for him to return to his original line of thought. Now he's ready, having chastised them a little, he's ready to return. I find that kind of interesting because it's not clear to me that he expected their maturity to suddenly jump to the appropriate level in one chapter It's almost as though he's going on under protest. He needs to explain this anyway. He's just not sure who in his audience is going to be ready for it. So let's take that as a bit of a challenge for our own sake this morning. Let's see among ourselves who's ready for the challenge of understanding Melchizedek. For friends, this is a challenge. There's a great deal more here than you will typically find, at least in my experience. And it's especially important to understanding Christ's role as our priest. So we pick up again with the writer. At the end of chapter six, as he transitions out of his warning back to the conversation, to his proof that Jesus is a greater priest than any found in the law with a greater order than the Aaronic order of the law. That is the order of Melchizedek. Beginning in verse 19, the writer says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered it. As a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's just cover the transition he's making here, and then we'll get into the proper conversation of Melchizedek. He ends his comments after chapter six, calling our hope in resurrection and rewards an anchor to our soul, an anchor to our soul. I love the picture he's painting. It's very easy to understand it, very easy to appreciate why he uses this picture. Remember what an anchor does, of course, right? An anchor on a ship or on a boat, it it holds the boat steady in one place on the water while it floats. But think about what happens if you don't have that anchor with a boat. 
Without an anchor, you drift. But more than that, you can't tell where you are. You can't tell your position. If you've ever been on a boat fishing, for example, and you had a small boat that maybe didn't have an anchor and you just push out to a certain point, you stop, you put your your rods over the edge of the, the boat and you just sit there, then you know the feeling I'm talking about. You're not able to detect your own movement. Only over time do you finally notice you're a lot closer or farther from some fixed object like land. But in the middle of it all, you can't tell. You have no reference on the water. You're likely moving away from your intended location, but you can't tell. That's the analogy that the writer is trying to make here. And it's a great one for what happens if a Christian lives without focus on our anchor, which is the hope of our resurrection and the hope of the rewards we receive for pleasing the Lord. Those things, he says, are anchors for our very souls. As you've learned already from chapter six, the writer said that those hopes that we have, the hope that we will live again in a new body and the hope that we will be receiving an eternal reward because we please the Lord, those things fix our view. They fix our attention like an anchor. But if you don't live that way, if you don't live with those things on the forefront of your mind, if you're not concerned on a daily basis about those outcomes, you'll be drifting inevitably. What you care about will shift to what the world impresses upon you as important. And here's the dangerous thing. You don't know it's happening while it's happening, like the boat without the anchor. You'll only detect at the end of it all, after some long period of time, when you realize you're sitting way over here like the world, when you should have been way over here like Christ, and you'll wonder, how did I get here? For some, that day of recognition won't even happen until they're standing before Christ at the Bema seat, at the judgment seat of Christ, and the Lord is assessing their life of works, and they'll realize, oh my goodness, look what I wasted my time on. I drifted so far. The writer says, don't do that. If you lose sight of those promises and you lose sight of a life set on pleasing him, your salvation is no less sure. And to some extent, your inheritance is still available, but you are unnecessarily piercing your soul with many griefs, Paul says in 1 Timothy 6. And then the writer adds that our eternal hope enters within the veil. Here's where we transition now back to a conversation of the priesthood. The power of our hope lies in a confidence that we know Christ as our high priest has moved, as the writer says, beyond the veil and has the power to make our hope real because Christ enters within the veil. And that reference to entering beyond the veil, that takes us back to the conversation of the priesthood. You know, the veil he's talking about, right? He's speaking about that curtain that separated the Ark of the Covenant, which lay in the Holy of Holies inside the tabernacle, from the holy place, from the main chamber. That veil was all important in Jewish religious observance. If you wanted to ask, where did the Jewish mind turn in their religious observance? What was the focal point? If ours is um, a cross on the wall or the communion meal or some symbol like that focuses our attention, well, what was it for the Jew? Well, for them, it was the imagined view of stepping beyond the veil. This is something that 99.999% of Jews never experienced, but they all thought about. When their high priest stepped beyond this veil, this barrier that separated men from enjoying the glory of God as it resided in the tabernacle, it was a symbol of how sin separates us from God. So entering beyond the veil was this all-important desire for the Jewish people because it represented reaching a point in which I could be so close to God that nothing separated us anymore. In a roundabout way, that's imagining yourself sinless. 
It's imagining yourself without any jeopardy, without any worry that there's something that's going to be judged negatively. You could enter into God's presence freely. Under the law, only one person could ever do that act of entering beyond the veil. And only then, only one time of year, that procedure was spelled out by the law of Moses. The high priest of Israel was the only man eligible to make this entry. And he did so only on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And on that day, he entered sprinkling blood of a bull on the mercy seat. And in doing so, he satisfied the wrath of God for the sins of the nation as a whole. By that ritual, the Lord counted the sins of the nation covered for another year. But friends, there are some obvious problems with this thing, with this process, with this ritual. Obvious limitations in the system that the Lord designed. For example, first of all, that high priest, he suffered from exactly the same sins and weaknesses as those he was ministering on behalf of. He himself was sinful. In fact, the law required that he make a sacrifice for his own sin before he himself could enter into that place where he then was going to apply blood for everyone else's sin. And because he was sinful, he also died eventually because he lived under the same curse of death that all sinful flesh does. So even if he was the very best high priest you had ever seen, there was going to be a day when his reign came to an end because he died. And then there'd have to be someone to take his place. That doesn't suggest a very final solution to our sin, does it? When the very guy who's commissioned to go in and atone for the sins of the people can't himself even escape the penalty of sin, that doesn't give us much confidence that what he's doing is really getting to the root cause of the issue, is it? And then secondly, he took the blood of bulls and goats, which is clearly inadequate to remove people's sin. And we know that because there was never a point in which the people ever had relief from this system. Every year it was repeated. And even between the annual application at Yom Kippur, you had daily sacrifices every day of the year in the temple or in the tabernacle. So clearly, whatever is being done by these things is not sufficient to put to an end the problem of sin once and for all. So... It doesn't take a genius to look at the situation, even back in the day of Israel, before we knew that Christ was to be the Messiah, for example, even before that was revealed. It didn't take a genius to look at the situation and say, you know what, we need a better priesthood. We need a better method. This is not sufficient. It's insufficient. At best, it's temporary. So in verse 20, the writer says, Jesus is that better priest Because, and then here's to the point of our conversation this morning. Why? Because he is of a better order. He is of a better priesthood than the one that the Jews knew under the law. And this better priesthood is called the order of Melchizedek. Now we're beginning to sense why it's important to understand the order of priests. Because it's this order, this order of Melchizedek, that puts an end to the problem of sin when the order that comes under the law could not. So in chapter seven, what's going to happen now is the writer now launches into a full discussion of the superiority of the order of Melchizedek. And he begins by explaining the namesake of this order. This order is named after a man called Melchizedek. Look with me in chapter seven. We're going to read verses one through ten. As we introduce this concept or this idea of the order of Melchizedek. Verse one, the writer says, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils. 
was, first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God. He remains a priest perpetually. Now, observe how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although they are descendants from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Well, let's parse this out. We have a man named Melchizedek, and he is, to say the least, a bit of an enigma in Scripture. He first appears in Genesis 14 in the story of Abraham, and that story is one in which we remember from years ago here, in which Abraham defeated the four kings of the north. Remember, those are the kings that came into Canaan to defeat the five kings of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adam, Zeboim, and Zoar. And in the process of this battle, those four kings of the north took captive all of the people of the city of Sodom, including, if you remember, Abraham's nephew Lot. And when Abraham hears that his nephew had been taken captive by this invading army and that they were pulling him, they were taking him back with them, he acted quickly, assembled a group of men and chased after those kings of the north, defeating them and freeing his nephew. Let me just review the end of that in chapter 14 of Genesis. Genesis 14, beginning in verse 14, it says, When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. Then after his return from the defeat of Chedalomar, And the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. He blessed him and said, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. So that's the heart of what we know of Melchizedek. There's another reference to him in the Psalms, which we'll talk about later in another week. But that's the heart of what we know about this man, Melchizedek. In verse 18, we're told that Abraham, verse 18 of Genesis 14, we're told Abraham is met by this man who is a king named Melchizedek. Now, the name Melchizedek is not actually the man's name at all. First of all, the name Melchizedek is not a name. It's a title, much like Pharaoh or Caesar Those names were given to the man who had the position. They're not his actual name. So first thing to note is we don't know what this guy's name is. We just know his title is Melchizedek. The writer says that it means king of righteousness in Hebrews 7, verse 2, but that is not correct. 
Not literally, and the writer's not wrong in the sense that he's mistaken. The writer's not trying to give you the literal translation of the name. He's doing something called a midrash. He's using a play on the name to make a point about who he was. Because the name actually means, my Lord is righteous. That's its literal translation in Hebrew. The writer's making a play because the man, he says, is the king of a city called Salem. Salem is present-day Jerusalem. But in this day... It is a Jebusite city in the day of Abraham. And in fact, the word Zedek that comes at the end of Melchizedek's name is a Jebusite name. So this man is a Jebusite. He's living in a Jebusite city and he is the king of that city, Melchizedek. Later, David conquers this city and names it Jerusalem, making it the capital of Israel. The word Salem, as the writer points out in verse two, is the word for peace. So not only can we say this man is king of righteousness, the writer says we could also say he is king of peace. So this man is a priest. This man is a king, king of righteousness, king of peace. If he is a priest, then he is also an intercessor for the people in that day before the living God. And both Abraham and now again the writer of Hebrews testify that he was a priest of God Most High. So let's be clear about this. He wasn't some ordinary, everyday pagan priest. He wasn't representing some false god. And he's not self-appointed. He didn't just become a pretender and walk around in robes and start calling himself priest. This is a man who was appointed by God himself to be a priest for him to the people of that day. Furthermore, we see Abraham recognizing this man to be a man of authority in that regard and one who is worthy of Abraham's honor and tithe. In other words, it's clear by Abraham's behavior. He sees this man as priest. Furthermore, Abraham in verse two pays him a tithe. Now, the tithe is a gift given to human beings as honor to God. Right. We don't put the money of our tithe on a conveyor belt and send it directly into heaven. Right. By nature of the process, it goes between human beings. That's always the case. So Abraham isn't giving Melchizedek his spoils here because he wants to honor Melchizedek personally, necessarily. This is a tithe. So he's doing it to honor God. So by conclusion, if Abraham is handing a tithe to Melchizedek, it means Abraham believes this man is the appointed intercessor for the God that Abraham serves. Otherwise, he wouldn't have tithed to him. All of that stands to reason. Lastly, verse three, the writer says this man, Melchizedek, he appears out of nowhere in the narrative of Genesis. And that's true. As you notice in chapter 14, I'm reading along about the story of Abraham. I'm reading about the kings. I'm reading about the battle. And then, bam, all of a sudden, in the middle of the narrative, out comes this guy, Melchizedek. And that's very uncharacteristic for Genesis. Super uncharacteristic. In fact, it's so uncharacteristic of Genesis, it stands out in this huge way. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Moses never spends any time whatsoever discussing Melchizedek's genealogy. There's never a point in any of the genealogies that mark that book in which Moses ever returns to say who begat who to get to Melchizedek. Or, for that matter, what happened to Melchizedek? It's never discussed where he dies, when he dies. And you remember, the book of Genesis is known for this. We get the times of people's beginnings and the times of their ends, the length of their life. That's a classic thing. Only for those, of course, who are pertinent to the story of the seed promise, focused down that line of people that come from Adam to Christ. That's the focus of the book. 
But it's highly unusual when you have someone playing such an important role in the book of Genesis to not be included anywhere in genealogies. It's as if he has no mother or father or as if he has no day that he dies. Those things seem to have no place in the story. And that would tell us there must be a reason why they were excluded, why he was unlinked to genealogy. So all of these facts leave us with a mystery, asking who is this Melchizedek? Remember, this man served as a priest before there was a law given to Moses. There was no tabernacle. There was no sacrificial system. The priests of Aaron had not yet been established. Aaron hadn't even been born yet. So we would ask things like, how did this man become a priest? Under whose authority? Where did it originate? Why did Abraham even know him to be priest? Why did Abraham think he was superior to himself? And then finally, and most importantly, how does this man and his role as priest relate to Christ? in his role as priest. Now, before we consider the answers from Scripture, let's deal with one possibility that I know is out there. It's frequently mentioned. Many believe it to be true. It's often cited as the answer to this puzzle, but from Scripture, it's self-evidently a false answer. Many have noticed all these unique characteristics of this man and how closely they picture Christ. Christ is the king of righteousness. Christ is the king of peace. Christ is both a priest and a king like this guy is, which is something that the priests under the law could never do. The law provided that priests came from Levi, but the kings all came from Judah. And we know that although Christ was born as a man, he had no beginning. He was in the beginning with the Father, and he lives forever to the Father. So in that sense, we know he has no beginning or end. He's the Alpha and the Omega. So with all of those details lining up, clearly, without any doubt, Melchizedek is a picture of Christ. There's no doubt about that. But some have gone too far. They speculate that because he's such an obvious picture of Christ, maybe he is Christ. Maybe he was a pre-incarnate Christ. In other words, some hold that Melchizedek was not a man at all. He was a theophany. He was the second person of the Godhead, visible to Abraham in a pre-incarnate form, much like the way the Lord appeared to Abraham in Genesis 18 with the two angels and ate with him at the tent. Same idea, they just make it true here. In doing this, in coming to this interpretation, you're making a common mistake in interpreting Old Testament Scripture. And the common mistake is you mistake picture for substance. That's a very classic mistake in Scripture. To say that because the picture is so strong, it must equal the substance. Ironically, this kind of confusion only serves to prove what the writer himself was concerned about when he said there is much to say concerning Melchizedek and it is hard to explain. This is proving the point. Many people today still misunderstand the importance of this man, his identity and how he relates to Christ. This is showing further evidence of that. Let's get it straight. Melchizedek was a real man who served as a priest of God. In Abraham's day. And before we understand who he truly was, let's rule out the theory that he is a pre-incarnate Christ. First, the writer's description of Melchizedek precludes that interpretation. The writer says this man was like the son of God. The term like in Greek, aphromoi, it means to be made in the likeness of something. So the man Melchizedek was made in the likeness of the son of God. In other words, he is a picture of the Son of God. But friends, by definition, a picture is the opposite of a theophany, the literal opposite. A theophany is the Son of God being made in the likeness of something else. A picture is something being made in the likeness of Christ. They are direct opposites, definitionally. Melchizedek isn't a theophany. He's a shadow. He's a picture of Christ. Furthermore, we learn back in Hebrews chapter five, verse one, 
that a priest must always be taken from among men so that he can share in the likeness of those he represents. Do you remember that definition? That's why Christ had to be made incarnate. Christ could not be a priest to us unless he shared in the likeness of us and could represent us in our form before God. That's a definition of a priest. You cannot be a priest if you are not of the kind that you represent. If this was to be Christ, if we were to say this is a theophany, we would have to qualify that by saying this is a pre-incarnate Christ because he is not incarnate until he's born of Mary. And that doesn't happen for hundreds of years after this point, thousands of years. Therefore, there's no way he could truly be a priest. He could have been a theophany. He could appear as a priest, I guess you would say. But Abraham looked to him as priest, treated him as priest. And the writer Hebrews says he is both Genesis and Hebrews say he was a priest. If a priest, he must be a man. If a man, he could not be a pre-incarnate Christ. There are other reasons, by the way, why Melchizedek could not be a pre-incarnate Jesus. But we're not going to go through all of them because those two are plenty as it is. And the point has been made. This man is a real historical figure. He was the king of a Jebusite city called Salem. He was a priest of God most high on that day, such that Abraham sought for him and desired to worship and tithe to the living God through his intercession. But that just returns us to the central question. Who is he? The first thing to remember from a few lessons ago is that the term order does not mean society or organization like an order of monks. In the Bible, the word order literally translated means succession. Succession. It refers to the handing down of an office from person to person through a succession of office holders. That's what the word means. It means a succession. For example, the office of high priest of the Aaronic priesthood, the order of Aaron. Think about how that worked. You only ever had one man in that position of high priest at any given time. And the only way it transferred between him and another was when he died, the next in line, his son, would receive that order, right? That's the idea of order, a passing down through the succession, one after another, one at a time for life. Well, just as the Aaronic priesthood has an order, so does the Melchizedek priesthood have an order. Only one man has it at one time. They keep it until they die. And then that it is inherited by the next one after them who keeps it until they die. Aaronic priesthood. Now, that just begs the question, who had it in Abraham's day? We find a critical clue to the name of this man and who he was in Second Peter two, verse five reads like this. And God did not spare the ancient world. But preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now, the translation I just read you is from the NASB, and it is very unhelpful. Because it obscures the real words that Peter wrote in Greek. If you go to a more literal translation, one like Young's literal translation, it reads like this. I want you to notice the difference. This is a literal word for word transliteration from Greek to English. And the old world did not spare, but the eighth person, Noah, of righteousness, a preacher, did keep a flood on the world of the impious having brought. Now, you can see why we don't use literal translations to normally read the word, right? The syntax starts to break down. But what's important there is the way the adjectives are being used to describe Noah. In the first translation, they read the words, the eighth person Noah of righteousness. And they said, oh, eighth, eighth of what? Well, there was eight people on the ark. They must have been talking about the eight people on the ark. So when they rewrote it into English, they wrote it this way. Preserve Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others. Now, the, the words with seven others never appear 
in Peter's writing. That's not what Peter actually wrote. What Peter actually wrote was eighth person Noah of righteousness. Peter wasn't saying Noah was the eighth person on the ark. Peter was saying Noah was the eighth person of righteousness, the eighth preacher of righteousness, the eighth man in the order of Melchizedek. Noah was the Melchizedek of his day. He was the eighth. From Peter, we learn he was the eighth man to hold that office of righteousness. If Noah was the eighth, well, then it's relatively simple to follow the succession backward to learn the previous seven, and it matches perfectly with the genealogical record. Noah inherited the position from his father, Methuselah, who died right before the flood. His father in the sense of his ancestor, not his literal father. And Methuselah would have inherited it from Jared. And Jared would have inherited it from Mahalalel. And Mahalalel would have inherited it from Kenan. And Kenan would have inherited it from Enosh. Enosh from Seth. And Seth from Adam. And that was the eighth in the line of preaching. Your handout shows you that. What we're learning is that ever since the fall of Adam, the Lord has appointed one man to serve as his priest on the earth. That man was always found in the seed promise line, the line of men who carry the seed promise to Christ. That line is captured as a part of the genealogy of Matthew chapter one. Each man held that office until he died. And the office of Melchizedek was inherited by the next man in the seed promise line. Sometimes it skips generations because sometimes fathers outlive their sons like Methuselah did over Lamech. So even though Lamech was the next in line, he dies before Methuselah does. So Methuselah keeps the office until Noah. The priesthood predates the priesthood of the law, and it continues on even after the law, which is something we'll look at later in the story. It's a superior priesthood. By its very name, you can foretell its purpose. It is the priesthood that brings righteousness, whereas the one of the law does not. Now, we're going to come back to the relationship between the priesthood of the law and the one of Melchizedek, because the writer does later. We're not interested in that so much right now. What we're trying to do is figure out who this guy Melchizedek is and why he's so important to understanding who Christ is as our priest. Immediately, we're struck with one insight that's valuable and important. God did not leave men on earth without an intercessor from the time of Adam. It didn't require that we get to Moses and Levi and Aaron before we finally had someone on the earth who could speak to the world concerning God and represent God to the people and take their tithes and take their worship. God never left a generation on earth without an intercessor. And he gave them the Melchizedek priesthood from the very beginning. So then if it went from Adam all the way down to Noah and then through the flood on Noah's behalf and then Noah on the backside, where did it go after that? And maybe more to the point... Who was it in the time of Abraham? Well, Noah was Melchizedek, as we said, but he dies shortly before Abraham battles with the kings. Did you know that Noah was still alive almost up to the point of when Abraham battled the kings and saved Lot? So it was Noah's son, Shem, who was the next man in the line of the seed promise. Shem inherited the office of righteousness and became the Melchizedek that Abraham met. In fact, Shem outlives Abraham, so Abraham never inherited the title Melchizedek himself. We know Shem settled in the area of Canaan, according to the book of Genesis. And apparently Shem became the king of a city called Salem, making him not only the priest of righteousness, but a king of righteousness. And in that way, his life becomes a shadow of Christ. He is like the son of God in that so much of the details of his life line up perfectly as a shadow of Christ. Interestingly, there is Jewish rabbinical teaching 
that holds that Shem is Melchizedek from Genesis. Now, here's the interesting thing about that encounter between Abraham and Shem or Melchizedek. Abraham was a descendant of Shem. Shem was Abraham's great, 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 great grandfather. And in patriarchal culture, Abraham naturally would have viewed Shem as his superior, not just his father, but his father's 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 father. I mean, a super superior in that respect, in a patriarchal culture. That is why the writer says in verses four through seven that Melchizedek was Abraham's superior. That's why Abraham would tithe to him, would show him honor. And that's why Melchizedek would have blessed Abraham, though Abraham's a great man in Jewish history. He can't be greater than his own father. And so he received a blessing from Shem. Chedorlaomer was also a descendant of Shem. So when you think about it, Abraham had just gone off and killed a distant cousin and family member of Shem. So Shem meets Abraham on the way back, presumably to restore family peace through an offering of bread and wine. In other words, to acknowledge to Abraham, you did the right thing. I'm not holding this against you for having gone after my own family. Meanwhile, Abraham tithes to Shem in recognition of his authority over his family and in thanks for God delivering the victory. Both men showing the other the due honor and respect and ensuring family peace. Even in this gesture, by the way, you find another picture of Christ because it is Christ who reconciles us in peace to the family of God. And then in verses 8 through 10, the writer says, this analysis proves that the priesthood of Melchizedek is a greater priesthood than the one that follows in the law. Because the priests of the law were descended from Levi, who himself was descended from Abraham. So think about it. Just as Abraham showed Shem all of that respect because he was his elder, by logical extension, the writer is saying, well, if you could have transported Levi from history backward in time and had him standing there right next to Abraham in the moment that Abraham met Melchizedek, what would Levi have done? If Abraham looks at Shem and says, I respect you for being my elder, and Levi is a further descendant, wouldn't Levi have done exactly the same thing? Wouldn't Levi have joined his uh, grandfather, great-grandfather, and said, if you do this, I'm going to do it too? Well, that's what the writer's saying. Even though Levi was still in the loins of Abraham, so to speak, had he been there physically, he would have done this. So we can say he would have owed it to Shem. And therefore, the writer says that if you think Aaronic priests are important, those who come from Levi, just consider that all of them would have seen Abraham to be their superior. And likewise, all of them would have seen Shem to be their superior. They would have tithed to Shem, not to themselves. And in that way, he says, the Melchizedek priesthood must be considered greater than any that came after it. The Aaronic priesthood particularly. So long before Moses and the law, the Lord made a provision for priests on earth, a priesthood called The Lord is righteous. That's the name of the priesthood, Melchizedek. The Lord is righteous. It stood for generations moving from man to man. And in each generation, you could find on earth one man and only one man who could intercede on behalf of those who wanted the Lord's mercy. Under the law, Israel was given another form of the same, a high priest, one man, an order in which it moves down generations who could intercede, who could go beyond the veil. But like those of the prior generations of Melchizedek, those in the law also had the limitations of sin and death, each man passing it on to the next. But friends, one day the order of Melchizedek passed down to an entirely different kind of man. When Joseph died, he passed the order of Melchizedek to his son, Jesus of Nazareth. 
That's why you see in Matthew's gospel, the genealogy passes through Joseph because he's passing the seed line and the order of Melchizedek in his description down to Jesus. That also explains why Joseph was not in the record of the gospels. He had to die before his son could inherit the order of Melchizedek and assume the priestly position that he has in that order. And his father is off the scene by the time his earthly father is off the scene by the time Jesus enters into his ministry. So for the first time and also the last time, a man inherits the order of Melchizedek. And it is finally held by one who is truly righteous, who is truly the king of righteousness, who is truly the king of peace. The one whom all the others were picturing has now finally inherited it. And as the writer will explain later in this chapter, there will no longer be any succession. For this man, Christ, will hold this order perpetually, for he never dies. If there's no death, there's no succession. There's no furtherance of the order. It stops with the one who lives forever. So Christ inherits the priesthood that was always prepared for him from the beginning, because he was born into the line where he could receive it, and once he obtained it, he never gives it back. The writer is saying, we have a priest who has been designed from the start. The plan of it has been designed so that he could enter in behind the veil, under a priesthood that never dies. And through him, we obtain not only the intercession of righteousness, but the reality of righteousness, for we are born again in his nature by faith. That's what we'll pick up again next time as we finish this chapter next time. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, thank you, Lord, for explaining these things to us in your word, for burying them for a day when we would come to understand them truly, that Christ is the priest Melchizedek. And Father, thank you that you gave your son the the life that never will depart so that we will have a priest who can never fail and so that we would have an intercession against sin that is ever present. But one day, Father, sin that will go away in our new bodies as we receive that hope of resurrection and that hope of reward. Give us eyes to focus on these things, Father, to understand them truly so that we might live out according to them. Let us live to please you. Call upon us, Father, to remember these things when we perhaps may seek to do otherwise. And thank you, Lord, for a church that considers your word in such a way that we would understand even the things that are difficult to explain. Bring us back next week, Father. Call us to bring others as you may give us opportunity. Let us be a light and a witness to encourage others to know you truly. And let this place, Father, be a a refuge from those who wish to escape sin. We ask this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.